Hey, everybody, I'm Michelle Norris, and this is Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. On September 24, 2016, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture opened on the Mall in Washington, D.C. To say the museum stands out is an understatement. It sits on prime real estate, steps away from the White House, and across the street from the rolling green that surrounds the Washington Monument. In some ways, the new museum is a cultural measuring stick. A country that refused to offer respect or even basic humanity to African Americans is honoring black history in an extraordinary way. Everything about the museum is bold. The mission, the collection, the $540 million building inspired by ancient African art. Visitors are expected to top 5 million people a year. As part of its coverage of the museum opening, the Washington Post invited people across the country to submit photos of objects in their family that connect them personally to black history. The Post got a ton of responses, including a 1793 marriage certificate, a bill of sale for a slave, and a black Santa Christmas tree topper. We created a podcast series that spotlights some of those objects and the stories behind them. In this radio special, we're going to hear three of those stories. We'll explore the history of the Million Man March through the lens of one man who attended it and learn how the great photographer James Vanderzee created images that emphasize the dignity and beauty of black people at a time when the dominant culture degraded them. But first, actor Keegan-Michael Key tells us the story of a group of black women who played a crucial role in World War II. As with all the stories in this series, we start with the object. The object that I submitted is a picture of my grandmother walking down the street in Hampton, Virginia, on her way to Langley Airfield, where she worked as a human computer in 1943. Hey, everybody, I'm Keegan-Michael Key. That is Duchess Harris, chair of the American Studies Department at McAllister College in Minnesota. Her grandmother was Miriam Daniel Mann. The black and white photo Duchess gave us shows a smartly dressed woman who is striding confidently along a downtown street. Now, she's got a top coat on and a big black handbag and a thick, really thick, hardcover book under her arm. My mom gave me the picture, so maybe she can tell us about um, the outfit and what it was like growing up with her mother working at NASA. The ladies dressed up for the times. Nobody wore slacks. And they wore these Oxford-looking shoes that had about a two-inch heel on them. And the picture that you have, it's like got a turban in it. That was quite fashionable instead of a hat. Under that fashionable turban was a mind that could do math. And I mean really do math. Real math. Like beyond algebra, calculus, logarithms, that kind of math. Miriam Mann was one of a handful of black women who were recruited by the government to work on top-secret aircraft designs during World War II. Their calculations would help win the war, and later, they would help America reach the moon. This is the story of the human computers. A human computer was a person that computed the math for the engineers, and they had a number two yellow pencil and a slide rule. That was it. That's Miriam Harris. She and Duchess are going to tell us the story of our main character, Miriam Mann. She, the second Miriam, the grandma, was recruited to make mathematical calculations for scientists and engineers at Langley Airfield in Hampton, Virginia. America had just joined the fight against Japan and Germany. Now, because so many men and women served in the military or worked in defense factories, there was an acute labor shortage across the country. Now, at the Langley Airfield in coastal Virginia, people were working 24-7 on top-secret warplane projects. Computing numbers? That was considered drudgery. It's women's work. Racial discrimination meant the computing jobs were just for white women. Until the war. Well, they were recruit for educated, colored ladies to come and do this computer work. And she heard about it because we lived on a college campus where my daddy was a professor. The campus she just spoke of, 
was Hampton University, one of the nation's oldest historically black colleges. Now, Langley Field, it was just across town. Until World War II, Marion's mother was a stay-at-home mom. But the computing job really intrigued her. It involved making a lot of complex mathematical calculations. And she was a college graduate with a degree in chemistry and math. Which, by the way, was really unusual for a black woman of the time. I think my grandmother's story is rare. Duchess Harris has written a new book for young people called Hidden Human Computers. It's about her grandmother and the handful of other black women recruited by Langley. And so when I was doing my research, I found um, an article from a Negro newspaper, and it was from May of 1943. And there are only 11 of them that are in this entering class. And so, you know, this was a great opportunity for a very, very small percentage of black people. For most African-American women with Miriam Mann's level of math and science ability, about the only job around was teaching in a segregated school. So here was an incredibly rare chance to be a professional mathematician. But Virginia, in 1943, was a deeply segregated state. Colored bathrooms, colored drinking fountains. They took them out to Langley Field and they didn't have any office space for them. They didn't know what to do with all these colored folks. And yes, separate working quarters at the airbase. So... They set them up in what's similar to a warehouse. It's what they call the wind tunnels, where they tested the planes and things like that. So what was that like for Big Mama? Now hold on, just so you understand, Big Mama was the family nickname for Duchess's grandmother. But mind you, Big Mama stood a trim 4 foot 11 inches high. Big Mama's name, um, well, it signified force of character, not size. All right, back to the story. Well, they went to the cafeteria. And over in the corner, they had this big round table with a sign on it that says, Colored Computers. And my mother proceeded to take the sign off the table and bring it home. Really? And my daddy would tell her, you're going to get fired. She said, well, I'm going down fighting. Did she ever get caught? They never knew who did it, but they finally stopped putting it. So then they put a sign on the bathroom that said, Colored Girls. So Mama took that down until they put a permanent one up, and she couldn't bring that one home. The research work at Langley Field could not have been more critical. The U.S. air fleet was way behind the more powerful German Luftwaffe, and the Imperial Japanese Air Forces. The National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which was the agency that ran this laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, their charge was essentially to make airplanes better, faster, uh, more technologically sophisticated. Author Margot Lee Shetterly has written a new book about the human computers titled Hidden Figures. During the war, as it became clear that airplanes were going to be a decisive force, the laboratory there in Hampton, Virginia, was running around the clock like many of the war industries. Langley engineers put airplane models and even full-sized aircraft into wind tunnels at the airbase. They made all kinds of measurements. Then the human computers took those measurements and made critical and complicated calculations. They did calculus, complex differential equations, uh, analytic geometry, and, and lots and lots and lots of trigonometry. They produced pages and pages and pages of numbers. One of the most impressive things is seeing the, the booklets that the women put together um, of their calculations. Mary Hurst is a retired Langley historian. Those women took those readings, and then they had a lot of formulas that they would run through And they would produce a book that could be 100 pages of nothing but numbers. And those numbers were taken to like seven to ten decimal places. Now, Miriam Harris says Big Mama liked the computing she did at the airfield. But sometimes she'd get bored if a project went on too long. She would come home and at the dinner table, and I didn't have a clue as to what she was talking about. And sometimes she'd say things like, if I see another logarithm, I scream. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I can't even remember what a logarithm In fact, I don't know what a logarithm is. I know the word, and I say it to make myself sound smart sometimes. But those logarithms, 
and the countless other calculations the women made helped the Allies win World War II. By the early 60s, Big Mama Miriam Mann and the other black women at NASA were working side by side in the same office with their white colleagues. Racial boundaries were changing, but slowly. And the funny thing about it was when they did that, they took the sign off of the colored girls' bathroom and just put ladies. Well, of course, none of the white people wanted to go in that bathroom behind those colored girls. And the colored women wouldn't go in it because they were going to go in there with white women. So my mother took it over as her personal bathroom. And she used it like that until she retired. And she had her coffee pot in there. And every morning she put her water in her coffee pot and take it to her desk. And at lunchtime she would go and wash it so it would be ready for her afternoon pot of coffee. And she kept her makeup and her comb in there. That was her personal. The other people didn't want to use it, so it was hers. That is awesome. In the 1950s and 60s, the human computers at Langley Research Center helped the U.S. win another deadly serious contest. During the Cold War with the Soviet Union, America was once again behind. This time, it was the space race a race to reach and control what might become a nuclear battleground beyond Earth's atmosphere. The Soviets launched the first satellite. And then they went ahead and did this. This is cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, broadcasting to Earth from his space capsule. It was 1961. The Soviets had put a man in space first, and the U.S. was crazy, frantic to catch up. It was the Langley Research Center's job to help. Langley was now part of the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or as we all like to call it, NASA. Good morning, this is Reed Collins at Cape Canaveral with aerospace correspondent Martin Caden. One of the most important jobs the human computers did at NASA Langley was calculate the trajectory of America's manned space flights. We're looking at nine stories of Atlas rocket gloaming in the dawn. Atop the rocket is the man of the hour, Colonel John Glenn. It was February 1962. Astronaut John Glenn's mission was to become the first American to orbit the Earth. Two, one... Zero, ignition, liftoff. There she goes. There is fire from that bird all the way. She's climbing straight. She's going good. Now, one of the human computers assigned to this mission was a woman by the name of Katherine Johnson, a brilliant African-American mathematician from West Virginia. Months earlier, Johnson had calculated the flight trajectory for astronaut Alan Shepard, the first American ever in space. Author Margot Lee Shetterly says John Glenn's flight was far, far more complicated. It was also the first to rely on calculations from an electronic computer. And Katherine Johnson hand-verified the machine's math. So her job was to help do the math to make sure this capsule got into its correct orbit, went around the, the Earth the prescribed number of times, and then came back down safely right where the naval ships were waiting um, in the Atlantic Ocean, close to the United States, so the, the astronaut could splash down and get plucked out of the water and carried to safety. Estimating 05G at 0444. There was much anxiety at NASA about John Glenn's flight, especially the re-entry of his Friendship 7 capsule into Earth's atmosphere. The math had to be just right for Glenn to get home alive. One miscalculation and Glenn's capsule could burn up as it slammed into Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Friendship 7, this is Cape, over. As the red-hot capsule hurtled to Earth, there was an agonizing four and a half minutes when Glenn's radio went silent. NASA flight controllers and the nation waited. Keep talking, Al. Uh, Friendship 7, this is Cape, over. Finally, Glenn radios in. A real fireball, as John Glenn said. But the math done at Langley was correct. He got home safely. And later, he visited the human computers to thank them. Miriam Harris says Big Mama was part of all that. But the work was so secret 
the Big Mama didn't even know exactly what her computations were being used for. They had no idea whether it was for an airplane or a spaceship or what. But after it was all over, they had like, I guess you'd call it like a big reception. And John Glenn came and spoke to them, thanked them and shook hands and gave everybody autographed pictures. And I think that was kind of the first time a lot of them even knew what they were working on. Okay, so do you remember at all if Big Mama was excited or not? Oh, yeah, she came home. That picture said still around here in one of those scrapbooks. Hello, everybody, please. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, please have a seat. In 2015... President Barack Obama awarded Miriam Mann's colleague, Katherine Johnson, the Presidential Medal of Freedom at a White House ceremony. She was even asked to double-check the computer's math on John Glenn's orbit around the Earth. So if you think your job is pressure-packed, hers meant that forgetting to carry the one might send somebody floating off into the solar system. Author Margot Lee Shetterly says that all these years after World War II and after the race to the moon, there are still too few people of color and women in fields like engineering and math. But she hopes young people will be encouraged to stay in a challenging math or physics class when they learn about the legacy of the human computers at Langley Research Center. You know, every time you sit in an airplane um, and, and, you know, take off from the airport, uh, some aspect of the plane that you're flying in can trace its, you know, success back to the work that the people did at the Langley Aeronautical Memorial Laboratory. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ooh, let me tell you one last quick story about Big Mama Miriam Mann and the human computers. It was 1969, the Apollo 11 mission. And astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were guiding the lunar landing module, Eagle, to the surface of the moon. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Big Mama had died two years earlier. She was 60 years old. She never got a medal for her work. But Duchess Harris says when Armstrong stepped on the lunar surface, he was standing in the footsteps of her grandmother. And all of the other human computers at NASA. Oh, I mean, most assuredly. I mean, because the history tells us that the people that were getting that work done were the black and white women. Duchess was a baby sitting on her daddy's lap, and he said, she's going to watch this man walk on the moon. She won't remember it, but she's looking at it. And she was just a few months old. But all of the contributions that these women made and the calculations and things led up to all of that. Without them, they wouldn't have gone any place. Keegan-Michael Key narrated the story of human computers, and it might sound familiar to some of you, the movie Hidden Figures, based on Margot Lee Shutterly's book, has been a box office hit. You're listening to Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. Coming up next, One Fellow's Journey to the Million Man March. This was a unique experience because all of the subways were just full of black men. It was a spirit of jubilation. You can hear all the episodes in our Historically Black series at our website, apmreports.org. You can see photos from the project and explore a timeline that shows where these stories fit in American history. Visit apmreports.org. I'll be back with Keegan-Michael Key in just a moment. This is APM, American Public Media. You're listening to Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. When curators of the Smithsonian's new National Museum of African American History and Culture began their work, they wanted artifacts that represented historic milestones, but would reveal those stories in a personal way. Ordinary items to tell extraordinary stories. 
In covering the museum opening, the Washington Post invited people across the country to essentially do the same, to share photos of objects from their own lives that connect them personally to black history. In this story, narrated by Keegan-Michael Key, we hear how the 1995 Million Man March changed the life of one man and became a legacy for that man's daughter. Uh, My name is Camille Washington, and the object that I chose to submit to Historically Black was a photo of the Million Man March, um, which my dad attended himself in 1995 and which has hung in his den ever since I can remember. Camille Washington is 26 years old and a program manager for international affairs at Harvard University. Camille was in kindergarten when her father, B.T. Washington, decided to fly from their home in Memphis to attend the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. I don't remember my dad going to the march, but I do remember the care with which he had the poster framed and had it hung in this place of prominence in his den, which you have to imagine my dad's den. It's like, you know, full 70s, like wood paneling, and it's his room. It has his fish tanks. He has this, you know, rocking chair that he sits in every night and polishes his shoes. It's just part of who my dad is somehow. And anytime I was ever, you know, called to be disciplined for something or my dad just wanted to talk to me or any, you know, when I came home from school, my dad was always sitting in that den and that photo was always, always there. BT decided to attend the Million Man March when his life was in limbo. He had just retired from 30 years in the Air Force, where he worked in communications and managed highly classified projects. What was he going to do next? And how was he going to support his family? BT figured going to the march might give him some perspective and a chance to spend time with Charles, his younger brother who lived in D.C. Camille was too young to know any of this about her father at the time, but gazing at that poster over the years... She came to understand that the Million Man March had changed his life. Good evening from Washington, where the heart of the Capitol has been filled today with African-American men. A huge October 16th, 1995. Young and old from all corners of the country here to participate in ceremonies of celebration, atonement, protest. Minister Louis Farrakhan and some other activists called for the march. Farrakhan was the charismatic and controversial leader of the Nation of Islam an African-American religious movement that's all about personal responsibility, economic self-sufficiency, and what some might call an unorthodox interpretation of Islam. Farrakhan asked a million African-American men to come rally in Washington. But it's a day that we're calling on black men to stand up and take the, the responsibility of freedom, the responsibility of their wives and their children, and the responsibility of building our communities. In the mid-90s, poor black communities were in crisis, torn up by violence and a crack epidemic. A growing number of black men were getting locked up in jail. Near Orlando, Florida last night, authorities rushed a 30-year-old shooting victim to the hospital. Today, they're making arrests for his murder. Black leaders are calling such violence America's number one civil rights problem. Peniel Joseph is a historian at the University of Texas, Austin, and the founder of the Center for Race and Democracy there. He was at the Million Man March. Now, Joseph says Farrakhan wanted to speak directly to black men about saving their families, their communities, and themselves. It was a call for what Farrakhan called atonement for black men to take uh, responsibility of cleaning up um, distressed African-American neighborhoods, taking care of their children, being better husbands, fathers, sons. Uh, So it was really a call for renewal uh, within the black community. Every time we drive by shoot, every time we carjack, every time we use foul, filthy language, every time we do things like this, we are feeding the degenerate mind of white supremacy And I want us to stop feeding that mind and let that mind die a natural death. When Farrakhan put out the call for the Million Man March, Peniel Joseph says the reaction to it in the black communities was not quite the same as in the white communities. So the buzz in the black community was overwhelmingly positive with the huge exception of black feminists who were scholars and activists 
who in a very pointed way said that they were angry that the march didn't include black women. Joseph says these feminists were angry about the anti-gay language of the Nation of Islam and their conservative views on women. But for, for the large parts of the black community who are in the barber shops and the beauty shops, they loved it. You know, black women were saying that he's, he's right, black men do need to fulfill their responsibilities. And black women were not saying this in some kind of anti-feminist way. They were saying it in a way of wanting help and partners because they were disproportionately heading single family households. As for white people... Well, they didn't know what to make of it. I mean, there were fears of violence, just like there were fears of violence at the March on Washington. White people were not invited, you know, it was for black men. You know, it wasn't about white people. So when it's not about white people, white people tend to get upset. President Bill Clinton was out of the office on the day of the march. He gave a speech on race relations at the University of Texas. When the day of the Million Man March dawned, black men began arriving in D.C. by the busloads. B.T. Washington could see this, I mean, as soon as he stepped into the D.C. subway system, uh, commonly known as the Metro. It was the weirdest thing. Here's B.T. describing it to his daughter, Camille. We recorded them talking about the march in a phone call. You know, I spent a lot of time in D.C., you know, because I, I used to go in there frequently to the Pentagon. But this was a unique experience because all of the subways were just full of black men. I guess it was a spirit of jubilation. I mean, everybody was just happy, you know. Everybody was speaking with each other, talking to each other, you know, about where they were from. And i just never seen so many black men that weren't fighting. <laughs> Or arguing or anything. I mean, everybody was making eye contact, you know. I mean, uh, it was really, um, it was really something. B.T. and his brother Charles got to the march early and found a choice spot under a tree on the mall. A variety of people spoke. Jesse Jackson and Rosa Parks, Malcolm X's widow, Betty Shabazz, and finally, Minister Farrakhan. Once again, B.T. was struck by the range of people in the crowd. Lawyers, gang members, there were doctors and high school students. Also, some black women. One in particular stood out. I still remember to this day that someone asked her, how does it feel to be surrounded by so many black men? And her, her statement back was, protected. I mean, that just spoke volumes to me about what we were about at that time. Dad, can you talk a little bit more about the, the program of events at the march itself and the, the speeches that stuck out to you? There was a young man there, and he gave a really dynamic speech. For our ability to survive the onslaught of the enemy's drugs, guns, and alcohol, his prisons and his killing fields depends directly on whether you are willing to stand up and resist the outrages that are being heaped upon us as a people and build a new society. Uh, again, it was all about brotherhood. It was about not doing certain things to people, you know, especially your own people, you know. I remember that Farrakhan had an extremely long speech. But the real evil in America is not white flesh or black flesh. The real evil in America is the idea that undergirds the setup of the Western world. And that idea is called white supremacy. It went on for hours and hours and hours. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was like four hours long or something like that, right? Yeah, it was hours and hours and hours. And you have to remember, we were all standing up or sitting down mm. on the ground. You know, so. <laughs> There were folks up in trees, up on lampposts and all this, you know, so. Well, uh, I know you weren't doing that. No, no, I was not doing that. <laughs> For the record, Farrakhan's speech was two hours, 10 minutes, and 58 seconds long. One part of that speech has stayed with BT ever since. It was a pledge that Farrakhan had all the men at the Million Man March take in unison. Take this pledge with me. Say with me, please. I. Say your name. 
pledge that from this day forward, I will strive to love my brother as I love myself. BT got a copy of the pledge and made a few changes to it. Dad, I'm so curious about what you changed. <laughs> <laughs> what were the things that you didn't like? Well, the thing I changed was at the end of it, they said, so help me God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> BT Washington is an atheist. Do you have the copy with you, Dad? I do. Oh, I do. would you mind reading it? Sure. Okay, so I, Booker Taylor, Washington Jr., pledged that from this day forward, I would uh, strive to love my brother as I love myself. I, from this day forward, would strive to improve myself spiritually, morally, uh, mentally, socially, politically, and economically for the benefit of my family and my people. I spread, it I, takes several minutes for BT to read the full pledge. I pledge that I will not use the N-word to describe any of my black brethren. I added that myself. I pledge Mr. Day Oh, and here's the part where BT does not refer to God. I will do all of this. I pledge. You know, Dad, it's funny for me to hear you read the pledge because I had some awareness of the pledge and I know that you have mentioned it to me before and I'm sure that I've seen copies of it laying around but I don't think I really understood how deeply that had set with you Mm -hmm. The, the biggest impact I think was recognizing that even outside of the military there were a heck of a lot of very successful black folks and very articulate black folks I was not aware of that, quite frankly, because I had, I had been brainwashed, really, you know. Brainwashed, BT says, by the racism of Jim Crow segregation, by the message that black people just didn't have the same kind of smarts and drive that white people did. BT got out of Memphis, Tennessee as soon as he could, spending his next 30 years in the Air Force, mainly overseas. He retired from the military as a chief master sergeant. I thought that the only black folks who were really intelligent and able to do stuff was folks in the military. <laughs> I knew it was ridiculous when you think about it, you know, but uh, that was what I, you know, what I thought. The Million Man March helped BT change his thinking. He became more aware of inequality in America, and he took a job with the U.S. Treasury Department. So for 14 years, he investigated discrimination claims by employees. B.T. could have taken a better-paying job, but he felt he could do the most good by helping others get a fair shake in the workplace. He retired from that work in 2009. So let's close where we started, with Camille Washington talking about why her father's den in Memphis, Tennessee, matters. Because his den was the heart of the house, all my memories of Black culture and my experience of Black culture took place in that in that den. So watching Venus and Serena um, come to prominence, that happened in my dad's den. The first time I read Alex Haley's Roots, which my dad is a big fan of, I read that swaddled up in a blanket underneath that underneath that poster. Under those million men. Which is a powerful thing. Powerful thing. Michael Key narrated our story on the Million Man March. This is Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. Objects hold history. They evoke stories stamped in time. The same is true of photographs. Writer Roxane Gay narrates our final story about the man who used his camera to change how the world sees Harlem. My name is Deirdre Darden, and the object that I submitted is a James Van Der Zee photo of my grandfather, Alfred. 
I'm Roxane Gay. The late James Vanderzee was an inventive and incredibly prolific photographer in New York City during what has become known as the Harlem Renaissance. By the end of his life, Vanderzee would be regarded as the most important photographer of that time. My mom found the original photo um, in my grandfather's belongings in Jersey City after he passed away. And he's very young, we think maybe like mid-20s. Which means the black and white photo was taken in the 1930s. It shows a nicely dressed young man with a snap-brimmed hat tilted at a jaunty angle. To me, this photo looks exactly like my brother. And so I just see this sort of like funny, probably like really smart kind of sly guy that's fashionable. Yeah, just like a cool cat. In the 1920s and early 30s, Uptown New York was teeming with cool cats. Many had fled the oppressive racial laws and customs of the Jim Crow South. In Harlem and other urban Black neighborhoods, a new wave of African-American art, literature, and music swept in. James Van Zee is kind of in the middle of that. Thomas Allen Harris is a New York filmmaker. He has chronicled the history of African-American photographers and says many of Vanderzee's subjects had been voyagers in this great migration. So he was documenting African-Americans as they move from being rural to being urban. And my grandparents were also part of that movement. Harris's grandmother moved to Harlem from South Carolina. His father came down from upstate New York. When the couple married, they went to James Vanderzee's portrait studio to get their picture taken. He was wearing a white dress, he was wearing a tie. They looked so dignified and so young and so happy. They looked like they could have stepped off of a, a Hollywood soundstage, you know, because it was that kind of uh, polish in the image, in their eyes, the self-assurance. It was absolutely uh, glamorous and, and, and beautiful. You know, and there's, you know, power in both of those things. One of Vanderzee's most iconic images is of an attractive young couple wearing raccoon coats. They're on a Harlem street, looking confidently at the camera and posing with a gleaming Cadillac convertible. Now, most white Americans of the time did not associate glamour and beauty or power with a black couple. Profoundly racist caricatures of African Americans were everyday entertainment, in magazines, on postcards, the radio, and movie screens. The Harlem Renaissance was a time when black artists and intellectuals across the country fought back against such degrading stuff. They declared the emergence of the new Negro, urbane, intelligent, and above all, uniquely creative. Harlem was viewed as the capital of black America. John Wright is a historian at the University of Minnesota. He says Vanderzee's photographs of well-dressed, dignified Harlemites was a way of asserting a new picture of black folk. The emergence of photography and of black community-based photographers taking images that served this reconstruction of the image of a new Negro is all of a piece. James Vanderzee might have been a musician instead of a photographer. He was born in 1886 and grew up in the western Massachusetts resort town of Lenox. It was a popular spot for the white East Coast elite. Vanderzee's parents were house servants to the wealthy and were themselves cultured and relatively comfortable. Vanderzee grew up playing piano and violin. He had dreams of becoming a professional musician. At the age of 14, he got his first camera and set up a darkroom in his closet. At 19, he and his brother Walter moved to New York City. Vanderzee's widow, his third wife, Donna Vanderzee, says the career in photography came almost by accident. So he's in New York, and he's working odd jobs as elevator operator, and doing gigs, and teaching music, and um, he takes a job in New Jersey, after he had seen an ad in the newspaper that said they needed a darkroom person. So he always used to like to say, I thought it was dark enough to get the job. One day, the white boss was out. James took over in the posing studio. 
With his gracious, gentle manner, he was much better than the boss at making people comfortable. Customers were soon asking to be photographed by, quote, the colored fellow. When Van Der Zee was doing as much work outside as in the darkroom, he asked for a raise. The man refused to give him a raise. And so he said, well, I can do this myself. I know how to do this. James and his wife at the time, Gaynella, eventually opened a portrait studio on 135th Street in Harlem. She was a talented business manager. He made most of the photographs. Trade was brisk. In the studio, one of Van Der Zee's specialties was using props and painted backdrops to create a tableau, a detailed visual allegory. He also used photomontage to tell stories. In one photo, a young couple poses in their wedding finery in front of a painted fireplace. Van Der Zee has superimposed a little girl, partly transparent, at their feet. I said, well, Van, how did these people take this? Because you started out with them. The subject was them. They were newlyweds. And here you have uh, the insertion of a, a child. Sometimes, he said, there was a space in the photograph that he wanted to fill. As simple as that. Van Der Zee told the couple the photo would be called Future Expectations. And they loved it. Historian John Wright says Van Der Zee also used darkroom techniques to make his clients look their best. He used to talk quite a bit about how his subjects oftentimes didn't uh, realize just how beautiful they were. At the age of 91, Van Der Zee recalled in a TV interview how he would retouch negatives to eliminate facial lines and wrinkles. You can see just what lines in that face is not necessary there. Well, it wasn't beautiful. I took out the, the unbeautifulness, put them in the position that they looked beautiful, and took out the defects. Well, they all look beautiful to me. Van Der Zee's clients were almost always well-dressed in their photos. Some historians say he kept a wardrobe at the ready for those who could not afford good clothes. To have enough clothing for all of his people, he would have to be Bloomingdale's. Donna Van Der Zee disputes the idea. Remember, it was not inexpensive to have a photograph taken. You had to look your best. Not only that, they may have borrowed a suit or a, a jacket or a dress or a hat from a relative. That's what I would do. In addition to studio work, Van Der Zee was also a kind of Harlem photojournalist. One of Van Der Zee's big clients in the mid-1920s was the United Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. It was led by a fiery Jamaican immigrant named Marcus Garvey, and was the largest mass movement of black Americans in history. Hello, citizens of Africa. I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. This is Garvey in 1921. The UNIA opened chapters across the country with a message of black political and economic self-sufficiency and a call for black people around the world to unite. There are 400 million Africans in the world who have Negro blood coursing through their veins. And we believe that the time has come to unite these 400 million people for the one common purpose of bettering their condition. Along with taking pictures of Marcus Garvey and his movement, Van Der Zee was also hired to photograph Harlem church and social groups, fraternal organizations, and sports teams, some posed in his studio, some in the streets. The Van Der Zee studio was housed in four different locations in Harlem over the years, but he always kept it at street level, rather than a less expensive walk-up. That way, customers had easy access, and he could display his work in the front window for people passing by to see. One was a Chrysler showroom, and that's when he took a lot of group pictures with 50 people in them, you know, large groups. Donna Vanderzee says the showroom was Gaynella's idea. She was very creative and wanted him to be successful. She believed in him and uh, was willing to stand in back of him for what he needed. That was Gaynella. 
Van der Zee also specialized in a kind of portraiture that may seem peculiar to some contemporary eyes, but was fairly common at the time. He photographed Harlem's recently dead. They were shown resting in their coffins at church or in a funeral home, often with religious icons hovering, superimposed in the background. The Great Depression of the 1930s hit Harlem hard. Unlike many other businesses, van der Zee's studio endured. But, after World War II, his portrait business began to dry up. Van der Zee blamed it on increasingly affordable amateur cameras and the growth of snapshot photography. But it was also that his turn-of-the-century pictorial style was simply no longer fashionable. He turned to making ID photos and even autopsy pictures for insurance companies. His studio was still open, but he rarely got business. By the late 1960s, the Vanderzees were impoverished, living in a small, squalid apartment, and facing eviction. In 1969, James Vanderzee was rediscovered when a researcher for the Metropolitan Museum of Art tracked him down. The Met was mounting a show to be called Harlem on My Mind. The researcher was delighted to see that Vanderzee had hundreds of boxes and shopping bags filled with negatives and prints documenting Harlem of the previous six decades. The exhibition was widely denounced for entirely omitting other black artists from an art show about Harlem. But Vanderzee's photos got attention like never before. Historian John Wright. People began to understand just how vast a reservoir he had in his archives. And from then on, he became very much the object of popular attention, but again, of scholars and archivists and of uh, historians of photography. Some money trickled in from the Met show and from photograph sales, but James Vanderzee was still broke. His wife, Gaynella, died in 1976. Two years later, Vanderzee married Donna. She had been working in the art world and helping take care of him. He was 89. She was 60 years younger. Donna Vanderzee soon tried to cajole her husband into making photographs again. She got his backdrops and the big 8x10 camera out of storage. And then came an unexpected request from a pair of well-known art collectors. Camille Cosby called up and said, is Vanderzee taking photographs? If so, Bill would like to be photographed. Bill Cosby was our first subject, and I said, Van, we've got a client. He said, no, no. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to take any photographs. I said, you've seen everything is ready. And the day of, he was not very pleased with me. But with the help of a younger black photographer, Vanderzee made the picture. Today, Cosby is accused of drugging and sexually assaulting dozens of women. But at the time, he was one of the most popular entertainers in the country. In Vanderzee's photo, Cosby is seated in a carved wooden chair wearing a pinstripe suit. He has a genteel hat and a pair of gloves on his lap and a cigar in his hand. When the negative was developed, and he saw the image, Van der Zee said, that's pretty good. And so I said, we can do more? He said, okay. In his 90s, Van der Zee made a handful of celebrity portraits. His subjects included singer Lou Rawls, actors Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, and boxer Muhammad Ali. And he was increasingly recognized in the art world as a photographer of great consequence. Historian John Wright says Vanderzee captured rich details of Harlem life that would have otherwise gone unrecorded and possibly forgotten. Part of what's remarkable about Vanderzee is that, you know, he, over the course of more than 40 years living in that community, compiled the largest body of photographs by any single photographer in the country, regardless of, of ethnic group. Uh, over 100,000 photographs in the course of, of, of Van der Zee's career, and there's nothing like it anyplace else. James Van der Zee died in 1983 at the age of 96. 
His work has been collected by major museums around the world. Donna Vanderzee says her husband considered himself a creative person, but not necessarily an artist. Photography was still in its infancy and it not considered the uh, level of art that it is today. And so uh, a person owning a shop was, was hardly one to consider himself on a par with uh, artists who, um, who were painters, for instance. In fact, she says, he took up photography in part because he wasn't so good at drawing. He could never draw faces and get them right. So he says that's one reason he so much wanted a camera. Our story about the great Harlem photographer James Vanderzee was narrated by Roxanne Gay. The Smithsonian Institution's museums are where the world comes to learn what it means to be American. The National Museum of African American History and Culture joins that pantheon with a distinct mission, to reframe American history through an African American lens. The museum's founding director, Lonnie Bunch, calls it a clarion call to remember. You've been listening to Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. This program was produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. We had production help from Kai Thomas, Mitch Hanley, Larissa Anderson, Ryan Katz, Suzanne Pico, Andy Cruz, Johnny Vince Evans, Steve Griffith, and Corey Schreppel. The Post staff includes Veronica Tony, Jessica Stahl, Julia Carpenter, Tanya Suchinski, and Tahid Chappelle. Our theme music is by X144. You can hear all the episodes in our Historically Black series at our website, apmreports.org. I'm Michelle Norris. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.